This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show, shoe shining your way to success. It's a good lesson to anyone that you never know what's going to happen next. John Timpson, chairman of Timpson. Then they asked me back to run the business in, and I took over from the uncle who, who fired my father. So that had a happy ending. Employing ex-offenders. This isn't a taster. Everyone who come, joins us from prison joins us as equals, as, as colleagues with all our other colleagues. The secret to customer service success. The only way to give great, great customer service is to trust the people who serve the customers to do it the way they want. Hi, welcome to City AM's Unregulated Podcast. This week we're joined by John Timpson. He's the chairman of the High Street chain that we all know and love. Timpson. It has 1,800 branches. It has 5,000 colleagues. It made £19 million of profit last year. And John's just published a new book, The Keys to Success. John, I want to start at the very beginning. Timpson has now been run by five generations of your family. And and you got involved at what point? <sighs> Probably when I was about three, uh, when my father would t- used to take me around shops. Uh, now, I... I joined the business when I was 17 mm-hmm. uh, as a shop assistant and uh, working in a shoe shop. I went to university, but I still worked in the, in the holidays and I was still working in shoe shops, did a bit of shoe rep- I was useless at shoe repairing. We had a shoe factory as well. And I was no good at that practically. Anything practical, I'm hopeless at. I actually had a real job in the business, which was as by... I bought the ladies' fashion shoes. That was... Man buying ladies' fashion shoes. I had a way of finding finding out what what you were going to wear next year, which mainly entailed going on a nice trip to Italy and one or two <laughs> trips to Paris and Dusseldorf and so on. And but you knew what was selling now. You knew what's selling, so you, that gives you a good guide of what's going to sell in a year's time. Because fashion moves moves very slowly and always in the same direction. Because goes around in a circle which takes 20 years. So I worked all that out. I was a director and as soon as I joined the board, they nothing to do with me. There was a big bus stop. Uncle wanted to take, take control and he got all the rest of the board to fire my father as chairman. So, so that, that sort of changed my life, really. I mean, well, as I, you know, I was going to say, so you had your whole life mapped out before you and suddenly there was this boardroom yeah, well, by uh, your uncle. It's a good lesson to anyone that. You never know what's going to happen next. It's certainly, so I suddenly found that I was actually doing something completely different. I, I very nearly completely threw the whole thing in. In fact, I was in within two minutes of doing so when I was asked to do another job. in Because my father and I sold our shares, so the business got taken over. And I finished up working. I was given this job, strangely, instead of packing it in, I was given this job because I lived near Liverpool. Mm-hmm. They had a business base there where they'd fired the buying director, the finance director, and the chief executive. And they just said, will you go over there and look after it until we can find someone decent? And, no pressure. And that's, it was 60 shops. It was wow. selling leather, leather jackets and fur coats and uh, all over the country. And you were how old at this point? 20, I guess I was 27. That's, I mean, that's a lot of pressure. Well... Anyway, it worked. I, then they asked me back to run the business in, and I took over from the uncle who, who fired my father. So that had a happy ending, but it all sort of... How did your father take your return to the business? Oh, well, he was pretty pleased about that. He was 
gutted by the whole thing that happened before mm -hmm. and uh, never worked again. And uh, it, it didn't, I mean, it, it was a very difficult time for him. And now your son is running the business, is your chairman, your son. Yeah, he, 14 years ago, I handed over the day-to-day -day running to my son. And he was exactly the same age as I was when I started to run the, the family business, when I went back to take over from the uncles. He was 30. I was 30 then. And uh, I think he's a pretty good age to take on. He knew an awful lot about it. And, uh, I mean, is it, you know, you've got other children as well. Is there uh, any likelihood that history could repeat itself? Well, my children aren't going to fall out over it because he's, he's going to be the only one in the business. And did um, you do that deliberately? No, 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 he's the only one who's interested. I mean, the, uh, none of the others were the slightest bit want to go, go near it, uh, <laughs> that sort of job. So that's fine. Um, but who knows? I've got nine grandchildren. And, uh, but I, I, I don't think so. I think the, the, the way it works, the way we run the business is unlikely to create the same problem again. And actually, having had that experience, you're pretty wary. Your wife, Alex, who sadly passed away last year, as I understand it, was quite involved in the day-to-day -day running of the business. She she had quite an effect. The bit she did day-to-day, -day, she went to a shop that was anyway not up to up to standard. I remember once she took out a hoover and hoovered the carpet. And, uh, I mean, and she was, she'd warn people that I was coming if I was parking the car, and she went in first and said, I've just, it's your lucky day. You're lucky that... <laughs> I'm here first and not John. Your bus is just round the corner. So they, they put the newspaper down or they get rid of the cup of coffee or whatever they're doing wrong. <laughs> uh, but no, she didn't get involved in the day-to-day -day running the business at all. Uh, but what she did do, I mean, she knew, she knew the big picture. Mm. And uh, she had an, a tremendous instinct for what was right and what was common sense. Her philosophy influenced the business a lot. Well, she gave all her time to other people. She reckoned there are too many takers in this world and uh, you can get a real buzz out of giving things rather than taking things. And her her idea of giving was to look after kids and their families. So uh, both as a foster carer, then lately, uh, lately she was uh, a Home Start volunteer. But, uh, I mean, she had... At any one time, there'd be 20 different people who were at the end of her phone. When you were thinking of doing an IPO, she just, she quashed it. Yeah, she told me I was mad. That was it. Well, and why was that? Well, because she was absolutely right. A, a actually, the, uh, the business was doing well at the time, which is why we were going to float it, and we thought we were going to be another sock shop, body shop, the things that were floating at high P's at the time. None um, of which are around. <laughs> Well, well the body, body shop is. Well, I mean, it, it, uh, yeah, but uh, tie rack and sock shop, and we weren't in that class anyway. But as soon as things started to go wrong, which they did within about two years anyway, it, we would have lost the business. It would have uh, been sold by, uh, it would be sold out to some venture capitalist somewhere. Uh, and anyway, I'm not the character, sort of character who could put up with any institutional shareholders. Alex was the only person who could tell me what to do. Hey! As we're back on the subject of shoes again, here's a quick montage of other shoe clips from other shows we've done. She's a no-nonsense kind of woman, despite her 
fun and quirky shoes. More on Theresa May's body language and leopard print shoes on the body language networking and how to be the most interesting person in the room episode. Manners are not for the elite. They're not to judge. They're not to say you're wearing brown shoes when you really should be wearing black. It's to put people at ease. You can listen to the MD of Debrett's on our Manners Maketh Man episode. When I first sort of read about heels gate, I was like, well, just put on the heels. What's the problem? And then, it, you know, as you think about it, and she's, she was a receptionist, so she doesn't actually need the heels. But in a client-facing role, you should be dressed to impress. And right back at the very early part of our iTunes feed, how to be badass in business for those post-high heel gate clips. Don't forget to rate us while you're there. Thanks. Upside Down Management, you've written a book about it. It's It's your shtick. Can you explain to us what, what that means? The way it start, started was because when I discovered the secret behind great customer service. If you want to really, really do a great job for customers in our sort of business or any sort of multiple business, uh, there is, I mean, it doesn't, you can't do it by putting a set of rules down or running training courses or in our case in shops having posters in the back room with things saying smile you're on stage and all that sort of stuff Mm. it doesn't really make any difference at all the only way to give great great customer service is to trust the people who serve the customers to do it the way they want that's it and then so that that means that to achieve that actually you've got to do two things one thing i discovered is it only works with the right people you've got to pick got to pick people with a really good positive personality and also you've got to make sure that the rest of the organization actually understands that their job doesn't it they're not allowed to give any orders their job is to help and support the people who actually make the money by serving the customers so and then i discovered actually it works all through the organization so uh someone in middle management they're free to do their job the way they want as long as they give the people in their team the freedom to do their job the way they want. So that's that's it. I mean, everyone in our business, no one gives orders. Everyone does their job. They're trusted to do their job their way, and their bosses are there to support them and help them. In practice, what does that mean for the people who are working in your shops every day? In practice, it means... Oh, they have two rules. Rule one is they've got to look the part, which means that they turn up on time and they put the money in, they turn up on time and they they uh, actually put on the uniform and the second rule rule two is they put the money in the till beyond that they can do whatever they like i specifically tell them they can spend up to 500 pounds to settle a complaint on the spot without talking to anyone else even if they're in their first week with the business uh and i also say that the price list that we have it's just a guide. They can charge what they want. If there's a good reason to charge that customer less, which is normally what it is, or in some very rare cases more because it's a very complicated job that we can't cater for in the price list, then that's what they do. So you, you've mentioned two groups here. You've mentioned the middle management and you've mentioned the people working in the shop and there's yourself. What, who were the hardest to convince of this? Oh, the... No doubt at all. It's the middle management, but specifically in our case, the uh, the area managers. Uh, they're they're the ones who sort of in the middle between 
the uh, the office. We don't call it head office for obvious reasons because we don't want anyone to have the impression that we're telling them what to do. We don't run it from there. We help everybody from there. Uh, but they're in the middle uh, and do the most important job in the business, actually, which is to look after the people in generally about 50 shops each. They have a team, generally seven in an area team. But originally... They were very difficult to convince. They told me, how can I be responsible responsible for the success of my area if I can't tell people what to do? Far from... And their other worry was, well, is there going to be a job left for me to do if I'm going to delegate all this stuff and let everyone do what I used to do? And we tried to explain to them, and actually you finish up with the most fascinating job in the world, which is to actually spend your time developing, picking picking the right team, getting rid of the people who are no good, very important, most second most important thing they do, mm-hmm. and then looking after the people who are really good in terms of praising them and giving them special treats and they go on holidays and all that sort of stuff, all the surprises that we do, and also, perhaps more important than anything else, looking after those people when they've got full-on tough times. Because if you've got someone who's really good and they start to perform less well, I'll guarantee something happens in the rest of their life, whether it's going to be a relationship problem or a drink problem or whatever. So one of the points that you raise in, in, in your new book is you write a chairman's report for 15 years' time. What's the concept behind that? Explain. Oh, simple. Other people go off and have a way days. Some businesses have five-year plans. Both, to my mind, don't get you very far. In fact, the five-year plan, and I've I've dug old ones out. I was looking one the other day for some time in the late uh, 1980s. Completely useless. I mean, it's just an extrapolation of what we're doing now, saying as, as long as you make sure in each department the sales go up faster, faster than the costs, then you make more money and everyone's happy. But looking at the future isn't about that. It's trying to get your mind about what are going to be the big game changes? What are the major changes going to happen, changes that might happen? And I've found the easiest way to, to examine that is to imagine you're writing the report for the business 15 years from now. So far away that you, you actually still have a bit of reference to what's happening now, but all anything could happen, and you think what trends are likely to happen. And... Do you know what the? I mean, most of what I, some of the things I've I got right. I, about ten years ago, I did forecast the big growth that we'd have with supermarkets, and uh, it wasn't difficult to see. But at least I got it right. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, in the end, the the most important part of that exercise is two bits. One is by thinking about what might happen in a digital world or online this or uh, what different services might we might do in our shops or what legislation, newer legislation might... Thinking about possible things gets you more prepared for them if they might happen. So that's, that's quite good. And it also makes you look at other possible acquisition targets that you hadn't thought of before and extend the range of... I mean, I'm in the service business. So I'm just... What we're good at is running shops with people in them. Yeah. And that's it. So it doesn't have to be shoe repairs. So we're now very much involved in dry cleaning and photo and so on. So it's useful to sort of have a trial run in your mind as to what might happen and what you might do if it, it does really come, come to reality. But 
the probably the most valuable part of the exercise is to examine what will not change. What's the bit of the business which is still going to be the same in 15 years' time? And it won't surprise you to know that the most important thing in 15 years' time is that we keep, we keep the culture. Our biggest challenge is to keep keep being a small business, although we've now got 5,000 people and heading towards 2,000 shops. But how do we keep that? I mean, I've just... I was telling you, I've just been to Tot Tottenham this morning because we've just bought Johnson's the Cleaners and in Tottenham that includes Jeeves. Yeah. And in Jeeves, I've not been there before, but there is, the, there is the factory where all the dry cleaning and laundry is done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic. But I, I spent the best part of two hours just going around saying hello to everybody in there. And that sort of thing will still be important in 15 years' time. I guess the one thing that everybody knows about Timpson, whoever you speak to, knows that you guys hire 10% of your workforce are ex-prisoners or ex-offenders. Yep. Um, you know, how difficult is that? Do you find it is it a kind of challenge to get those people in and get the right people? And is that a quota that you've created for yourself or is that just what's happened? Oh, uh, a bit of both. Um uh, it was, I suppose, quite difficult at the start. I mean, we it all happened by chance because son James was in a prison uh, visiting for a completely different reason and the guy who showed him around impressed him so much, he gave him a card and said, Matt, when you get out, give me a ring, I'll find you a job. And he's still with us. I saw him about three weeks ago. Uh, then we made... So we decided this was a very good thing to do for two reasons. One, the fact that... 61% of people leaving prison reoffend within two years, but that drops to 19% if they've got a job. And secondly, no one else would want to employ them. So we got a free run. We could have the... Because I make no bones about it, we're, we're picking the people who are most likely to succeed. We made the mistake right at the beginning of trying to employ people who would never succeed. And that's, that's the pool that we're looking in to find the right personalities. How do you choose them? How do you decide? Do they come to you or do you go to them? Uh, no, I mean, they. we go to them because they, they can't come to us, they're in prison. But uh, they um, apply. Amazingly, this is how I re-met my very first foster child because my wife and I were foster carers. And the very first two we we never saw after the six months they were with us because that's, that's the way it was. And always wondered what, what happened to them. And uh, he... One of them, the younger brother, wrote to my son from prison to say, could he have an interview? Oh. That was about well, nine months ago. And that was uh, after 36 years, 37 years. So they, a lot know about it in prison and they apply. We do the interviews. We don't rely on the prison staff at all because we know who... We don't want to set people up to fail. We've got a good idea of the sort of sort of personalities that work. And then they join us. Best if they join us before they leave prison. So they stay in prison at night because they're in prison. In the, yeah. And they come out to work and then they go back to prison in the evening. And some do that, might do that for six months before release. And they've even got to, promoted to branch manager before they've come up, they've finished their sentence. Um, but they join us as... This isn't a, this isn't a taster. This isn't just a bit of work experience. 
everyone who come, joins us from prison joins us as equals, as as colleagues with all our other colleagues. But how do the other colleagues feel about that? You know, have well, you I'm, had people I'm, complaining? I'm worried about that at the start. I'm worried about what the customers would think. Uh, and what do your customers think? And uh, both customers and colleagues really think it's great. Okay. Particularly our colleagues, who, because it wouldn't work without them. It wouldn't work without them understanding that actually it's quite easy to, if we pick the right people, it's easy to teach them to be shoe repairers and key cutters and repair watches and so on. But it's not so easy for people leaving prison to adjust for the rest of their lives. And they do need a lot more moral support and practical, sometimes financial support. Because for a lot of the sort of people we employ, leaving prison is the start of the sentence. That's when life really gets hard. So, you know, you've been described as a maverick, um, but I feel like a lot of your values are very traditional, like a lot more traditional than a, a lot of other big retail and other big business owners. Do you feel like that? Well, I suppose in some ways you're right, because I mean, I, I don't believe in, I mean, we don't have a marketing department. I don't, we don't do, no point in doing market research. I can't, I've never seen the point of market research in our business. What are they going to tell me? The way to be successful, the market research should tell me, is to do a great job and look after the customers. You know, well, what a, a surprise. I mean, that's a very traditional attitude. And I don't need all this socio-economic... You know, I, I want to serve everybody. It's, uh, so, no, I mean, I get my market research by visiting all the shops. James and I spend two days a week just going around, chatting to people. We're not on a witch hunt. We're, not trying to, we're just there to... Call, talk to the people and feel what the business is like. But do you, do you not see any value in kind of new ways of doing business? You know, you've got things like business books and new strategies and apps and things like that. Is that just not for well, you? Well, I mean, we do get involved. We're trying to, trying to sort out the right app, as you call it, uh, which is going to drive people into our uh, photo shops and uh, at least take some of those millions and billions of photos that you've got on your various uh, smart devices and turn them into real pictures or photographs. So uh, we're certainly involved in apps as well as that's concerned. We've got quite a lot of technology on the photo side of the business. Uh, we Where we get stuff moving about, like we do with dry cleaning and with watches sometimes, we're, we're doing more and more tracking systems to make sure we know where they are. Uh, but the, the technology is very much designed for us I'm very suspicious of what people think is best practice. I don't, I'm not great on the whole governance bit. I think that the whole, one of the biggest sins that's been committed in business over the last 40 years is all the process that's been built up, all the health and safety, all the HR departments, all the things that uh, lawyers and uh, accountants have put on us, which actually had nothing to do with the end product of what we do. But isn't I mean, there's a reason these things exist, surely. Well, I do wonder whether people have thought through what the reason is. You look at an annual report of a published company. It's enormous. It's full of stuff that no one ever reads. And if they did try and read it, they wouldn't understand it. Because of various... Uh, accountancy practices and regulations. It's perhaps good good news for the accountants, but uh, it doesn't do anyone else any good. One thing that's going to simplify legislation a lot, we hope, is Brexit. 
What's your view on that? Well, I hope it will. Uh, but that actually does still depend on entrepreneurs, executives, having the courage to do things their way. And I think a lot of us running businesses have been complete wimps in being rolled over by all these regulations, most of which haven't actually come from Brussels. They've been they've come out of the breakfast seminars and sometimes a bit of gold plating from Westminster, which will go way beyond what the original uh, directive from Europe said. Uh, so my worry is that you've got a whole lot of uh, people working in Whitehall who will continue to legislate because that's what they do. Uh, and it's going to take some courage uh, for this country to actually turn around and say, we're going to cut out some of these regulations. Are you in favour of Brexit? I was, and still am. And I am not surprised what's happened since. Um, and uh, <sighs> it's a pity that so much, so much harm is done by people trying to rerun the race when it's already been finished. Uh, but no, you, it's certainly in my... When I wrote my annual report which for 2032, which I did about two months ago, uh, it turned out to be a great success. Uh, but, of course, by 2032, uh, Europe was completely different as well. and There, there wasn't an EU. There was a new uh, fellowship of Europe where we all got together in a nice, sensible way without telling each other what to do. Uh, I think my mission to the Treasury is I think they ought to get out and find out much more about business before they decide what, what to do. They have a habit of coming up with new ideas which suddenly, when it sees the light of day, are not quite what they thought they were and cause unintended consequences because they're sitting too much in their offices and don't spend enough time going around the world of business. John Timpson, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. With thanks to our guest John Timpson and podcast producers Jamie Wareham and Karen Bevan, this has been City AM's Unregulated Podcast. Hang about for this week's Twitter conversation, but also, deep breath, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or with RSS, or with your favourite podcast app. And remember, email advertising at audioboom.com if you're a brand that wants to connect with our ABC One millennial audience. And to this week's Twitter conversation, tweet me at Emma Hazlett, that is with two T's, with a picture of your favourite shoes. Because seriously, I do want to know. Tweet me. See you next week. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production. <laughs> <laughs>